So uh, this week, actually, uh, last year, I was in uh, India with a few young adults um, on a missions trip. What's up? And uh, yeah, you were there. What's up? You're in some of the pictures about the show. I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing, but all right. Uh, and uh, it was an awesome trip. We got to do some really cool things, hang out with some really cool people, and, and just get to like experience a different culture. I mean, India is an in, it's an entirely different culture. I mean, to say the least. I got some photos I want to show you guys. Um, I'll show you the first. This is the crew that went. Um, super rad. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. Uh, you can go to the next photo. So this is the air in New Delhi. Um, I don't know if you know this or not, but the air there is terrible, right? Like it's, it's overpopulated. They got too many cars. They burn their trash. So literally the place smells like trash. I mean, it, it's just, it's intense, but it's like literally after the week, like my lungs hurt. You can go to the next photo. Oh, this is super funny. Um, so so uh, we, we were like walking to the Taj Mahal. That's where we were. And, and people were running over trying to take pictures pictures with us. And uh, we're like, well, you know, why are people trying to take pictures with us? So they're running over and we're thinking they're trying to like pit, pocket us, something like that. So we're all holding our pockets, things like that. And our tour guide says, oh no, it's just because you're white and they don't see white people. <laughs> right? So we're like, what the heck? So they're all like, I saw a white person today. And they're like taking selfies of it and stuff like that. That's a pretty popular thing. I thought it was hilarious. I go to the next photo. This is Austin and I at the Taj Mahal being white or racist. I don't know, but it was fun. Um, and then this is the crew. Uh, this is the, we were in a place called Padong there. Um, and uh, that's the city that, the, the city that we were in. And so the reason I kind of want to talk about that today was, well, literally uh, this week, last year, I, w- I was there. But um, there's something interesting that happened while we were there. Um, around four in the morning, uh, we woke up to like this loud kind of chanting out our window. So I woke up and my heart starts pounding. I'm half asleep. And the first thought that comes in my mind was there's some radicalist that found that we, the Christian missionaries, were staying at this guest house in the city of Padong, right? So my heart's racing, thinking they're going to light the place on fire. They're going to shoot us. I have no idea. My mind's just going to absurd places at four o'clock in the morning. And so I kind of like wake up and I kind of creep through the, the, the blinds. I'm like asking my wife like to find a knife, right? Like, and I'm like creeping through like what's going on? And out the, out the, the window, what we see is uh, like a bunch of people in, in bright colored garments kind of chanting to their God. And I don't really make like, making sense of what's going on yet. And so my mind, like most guys, kind of goes straight to like plotting an attack or an escape, right? So I'm thinking, how are we going to get out of here? The door is here and a bunch of things like that. Finally, we found out that uh, they were kind of just worshiping one of the 33 million gods of Hinduism. And so that they, they, they were doing this thing and this elaborate kind of chanting and dancing and things like that. And then they kind of left. And so later that morning, I, I went up to the, the owner of the guest house and I was like, what? Like, if you just wanted to wake me up, you just had to knock on the door. Like, what was that, right? Like, what, what was that, like that chanting at four o'clock in the morning? He said, there's some people in the village, um, some Hindus in the village that uh, do that to appease their God, like their, their specific God. Okay, so okay, well, what are they appeasing their God for? And, and what do they do? And how long do they do it? And, you know, what's going on? And he said, well, they do it for like two hours and they have to walk miles all over the village to, to do this, to appease their God. So what motivates them so much to do this? Like, in other words, why, why are they really doing this? And he said that most of them were farmers asking God to bless their crops. In other words, they, 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 were, they were wanting something from God. And so they, they felt that if they did this thing, God would now bless them in turn with, with good crops or whatever it was. And he said that other people do it for different types of um, motivations, blessings, or, or even fears. And I got to think about that this last week, and I was thinking through this question. What do these people really want? Do they want a relationship with God, or do they want something from God? Do they want a relationship with God, or do they want something just from God? And I think the same question is, is raised in Genesis, chapters 1 and 2. And in Genesis, we learn that God created us in his image. But he created us in his image for a very specific reason. And that specific reason was to live with God. 
But we know in Genesis chapter 3 that our ancient ancestors had a, had a different plan. Rather than living and ruling with God, the man and woman sought to be apart from God. And we, if you know the story in Genesis chapter 3, you know that a serpent deceived them and, and into eating something they shouldn't have done, that to disobey God, in other words. And, and what's really interesting in the story is that they did not take the fruit merely because it was appetizing. Nowhere in the story does it say they took it because um, it looked really good to the eye or it, looked, it was, it was going to be really tasty or whatever it was. There was more of a, an interesting motivation there. They took it because they wanted to be like God. And this was an act of rebellion. That's essentially what sin is. It was rebelling against God at this moment. And, and this kind of creates a coup of, of creator versus the creation. And this, was a re, this essentially was a rejection of God and his plan to be in control. And they no longer wanted to merely live with God. They wanted to be God. They no longer wanted to allow God to be in control. They wanted control on their own terms. And so this kind of got me thinking of where we're going to be going tonight about kind of my relationship with God and about just religion in general. When you really think about it, fear and suffering are, are a universal human experience. And every religion is kind of an attempt, and in some ways, including Christianity, is an attempt to kind of overcome this uh, situation. When you really think about it, the greatest scarcity of life is life itself, right? Because we all live in the shadow of death. And this shared reality, the nature of the world after Eden, is why we're all afraid, and so to mitigate our fears, we all seek control in some way or another. We think that if we can harness or control unpredictable forces or subdue our environment and rule over circumstances, then we can alleviate our fears. Or so, we think so. Let me provide an example. So when I was a kid, I was a punk. I mean, I was constantly doing things that would get me into trouble. In fact, so I'm a junior high pastor, and I often get to share stories, you know, about my life when I, when I was in junior high. And the kids love it because I was an idiot. I was the type of kid that, like, your parents said you shouldn't have hung out with. That was, that's who I was. I was con- let me tell you. So uh, one day I found uh, all of my dad's bullets. I mean, I was a police officer. And so I had the brilliant idea to take all of my dad's bullets, put them in a vice, crank the vice to extract all the gunpowder to make pipe bombs. I'm that kid. Uh, <laughs> and so um, I was like, that's what I'm going to do. So I take all his bullets and I put them in a vice. I, I, I you know, press them all against together and, and uh, get the gunpowder out. And I get a PVC pipe and they fall into the P- PVC pipe and I pack it in there with like tissue and a, a string. And then I run over to the park and I duct tape it to a swing because I'm an idiot. And, uh, and so I grab the swing, I light it, I, and, it goes, and it goes, boom, this huge loud explosion. And I'm like, that was awesome. Pieces of the swing are flying everywhere, right? And so I run back to my house to grab the other pipe mod I made. And then I run back over and then I I duct tape it back to the the swing. And then I'm just about to do it. And all of a sudden I hear, get on the ground. And I turn behind me and there's a police officer. And he has his gun out, unholstered. It's not pointing at me, but it's pointing at the ground. He's like, get on the ground, get on the ground. So I'm like, "Uh," so I get on the ground, right? And I'm like, what's going on, right? And he goes, what what are you doing? I'm like, making pipe bombs? He's like, what? And I'm like, yeah, I don't don't, don't know. And he's like, where'd you get the gunpowder? I was like, my dad's bullets. He's like, this is the weirdest kid I've ever met in my life. So he handcuffs me and he sits me down on a, on a bench and I am like Casper White. I'm like, I'm an idiot. <laughs> like, like, oh no, what did I get myself into, right? And so the, 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 police, the police officer goes like, where are your parents? Like, wh- like, why are you here at the park alone? I was like, I live in that house right over there. And about that time, my dad kind of looking out the, like the, the house and he sees that I'm an idiot over here being handcuffed by a police officer. So he walks over and, he, and my dad was a police officer as well. And he starts talking with the police officer. Like, what, what did my son do? And my son, he's like, oh my gosh my son's an idiot, right? I'm like, I am an idiot, right? Like, I don't know how I got myself into this trouble. And in that situation, the cop kind of came over to me and I was like, I don't know, I don't know, just talk to my dad. Like, I'm an idiot, he'll figure it out. Like, just talk to my dad, just talk to my dad. 
And I turned to my dad to control the fearful situation, knowing he had more influence than I did, or, or a higher level of control over a situation than I did. And I kind of just defaulted to him, like, I don't know, he's, he's going to be the one that's going to control the situation. I can trust that he's going to make everything, sh- make, make it okay. And the reality, it was, actually, I don't know how I got away with it, probably because my dad was a police officer, but he let me go. I got grounded for the rest of my life, but uh, I, I, was, I got out scot-free. And in many ways, I think we do the same thing. I think we turn to religion or God to control situations that we cannot. God kind of becomes an scapegoat. And I'm not saying that's entirely a bad thing, because when you think about it, God does provide for us. God does care for us. But apply that same logic to like any relationship you have. If you, let's just apply it to my situation. If I only went to my dad in times of need, how good of a relationship could I possibly have with him? Not that good of a relationship, right? I would probably have pretty of a damaged relationship. And since Eden, our human capacity to relate with God has been severely impaired. And I heard it described like this once uh, from a pastor. He said that we are like pilots in a fog with malfunctioning instruments. We cannot tell where we are and where we are going. This is the effect of sin, and it has damaged our ability to answer simple questions, like even the simple question God asked Adam in the garden, where are you? And so this is ultimately the effect of sin in, 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 in the way that it warps the way that we relate to God and the role of fear and control that now plays in human religion. And so with that in mind, here's what I want to do tonight for the remaining of our time. I want to talk about four postures that I often find myself in and, and, that, and that I think we all can, um, are prone to have because of the effects of sin in our lives and our desire to control our fears. And so the four postures uh, we're going to kind of talk through tonight, here's what I want you to do, though, as we talk about the four postures. I want you to uh, see which one you most identify with. The one as I kind of list off different qualities and characteristics of the spiritual postures um, that we fall into sometimes because of the effect of sin on our lives. I want you to see which one you're most prone or predisposed to fall into. At all different times in my lives, I've seen me fall into all four of these. And in fact, sometimes I've been all four at the same time. Um, so the first one is this, and I have a photo that, that'll help maybe describe what we're going to doing. I drew this myself, so you better like it. Um, the first one is this, life from God. And life from God rightly teaches that he is our provider, but it just sees him as our provider, and that's it. This posture makes him into kind of a divine vending machine to give us essentially what we want, and that's just about it. People in this category um, want God's blessings, but nothing else from him. This is also known as kind of consumer Christianity or the prosperity gospel. Years ago, I had a friend of mine... um, who was constantly attending young adults. And like years and years ago, back in the beginning of young adults, this person was attending every single week. And up until the last like three years, they, they, they haven't even been once. And so I ran into them the other day and I asked, hey, uh, what kept you coming way back when? Like, you know, back when young adults was starting, like, why were you here every single week? And they said something that I thought was so interesting and helped me understand where they were at in their faith. They said, well, I felt that if um, I stopped coming to church, God was going to stop blessing me in school that I wasn't going to be able to memorize what I was supposed to memorize, or I wasn't going to get good grades, or God wasn't, the Holy Spirit wasn't going to curve the grade. And, you know, like, that, that, that's kind of what he said. And now I'm not in school, so I don't really need God. The second posture is life over God. And this is all about following the right principles and how to kind of guarantee a good life. And in this case, God is used for practical help and advice. I met a pastor recently um, who was consumed with reading leadership books. And he, he thought that in his leadership books was going to be kind of the key to finding, to reaching this next generation, millennials. He said, I'm going to find it in this leadership book. 
And he said something I thought was really interesting to me. He told me that um, he thought that reading these leadership books and understanding organizational principles and things like that was more important than prayer, at least at this specific time in his life. He said, and this is literally what he says, he said, God gets it. Leadership is more important at this moment. And I said, no, it's not. The third one is life for God. And life for God makes everything about God's mission in the world. It's used, it uses God to get, give us a sense of meaning or value or purpose. And this idea is that I've at least found most often in my peers. It's also, by the way, the, the one I'm most often to fall into. I'm most often to live this posture life for God. And I've often seen it most in millennials because we, we really want to like live out our faith, which I think is awesome. We want to like go on missions trips more than other generations did. We want to care for people, right? Project, the projects that we do here to care for other people and things along those lines. Because we're really, really about kind of having an active faith. And I think that's an incredible, incredible thing. And we do it by whether helping the poor or growing the church in some way. But we tend to find purpose and meaning through what we do for God. I met a girl in one of my classes at Biola a few years ago who was a senior and she was getting ready uh, to graduate. And she was kind of struggling with what she was going to do. And um, she said something I thought was interesting. She said, you know, I don't really know what I'm going to do, but um, I'm gonna de- I decided that I want to be a missionary. And this is literally what she said. Because my greatest, my greatest struggle is insignificance. And so if I don't do anything in my life, I feel like God's not going to love me. And this, to be honest with you, is the most celebrated posture in the Christian community because it's so focused around doing things for God, but honestly, it can be so absent of God. And then the last posture is life under God. This posture sees God in simple cause and effect terms. By kind of obeying like his his will or what he's told us, he's going to bless us and he's going to always be on our side. And this idea is to kind of use God to control one's world or, uh, you know, the things going around them. And these are the Hindus in my story. They believe if they don't do this thing, God's not going to bless them or God's going to be angry with them. And therefore, uh, they're not going to get the crops and their family's going to perish. So I'm a youth pastor. I love kind of involvement, engagement with the crowds. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to answer this question. I want you to turn to your neighbors and, and, and talk about it for like a minute or, or two. Here's the question. Which posture are you most prone to fall into? Which posture do you see yourself most actively following? So it's the one that you kind of default to, that you're living for God, you're living um, over God, you're living under God, or you're living from God. I want you to turn to your neighbor. I'll give you a minute or two to talk, answer the question. Which posture are you most prone to fall into? Ready? Go. All right, all right, bring it back. So I want you to see this, that there are truths to all of these postures, right? That there is a truth that, that kind of lays in all of these different postures. God does provide for us. He does bless us. He does care for us. But I hope that you see that all of these postures, these four specific postures, are all designed to kind of control God or use God in some way or some capacity. In some way or another, they're trying to get something from God instead of getting God himself, whether it be a purpose or a blessing or uh, the principles by which we're going to kind of govern our lives, they all try to control God or use God. In each of these um, postures, God has achieved to use some other means. He, in, in other words, he's just a means to an end. And those four postures at some time or another, I think we can fall into. But there's really one posture that God desires from us, and that's the fifth posture. And that's what we're going to talk about tonight, which is life with God. This is the central calling and mission of Jesus Christ, that we need to see that God is not merely 
the means by which we achieve our treasure, that Christ is our treasure. As Christians, he is our treasure. The reason I think a great many of people in our churches today are failing to experience freedom, the reason that I think so many young adults or so many just Christians in general are, are, are failing to experience love and purpose and, 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 and true freedom in Christ is because they have been, we've never been taught to desire and want God. Instead, you've been taught to use God to achieve some other means. I'll give you an example. In Sunday school, you're told to read your Bible, right? Because then God's going to bless you. Or you're told to pray because then God's going to bless you. You're told to go to church because that's a good thing and then God, God's going to bless you, right? So, so we're taught in, in our churches even that, that, that Christ isn't the treasure, that, that what he can do for you is what the treasure really is. The purpose that he gives you, the life that he gives you, the mission that he gives you, the fulfillment that he gives you, that's the treasure, not him himself. I think there are three things that, that, that are needed to stay in this posture. The first is a clear vision. I think I have a, yeah. The first thing that, uh, that I think are needed to stay in this posture with God more often is this. A clear vision of who he is. And we're gonna talk about treasuring him tonight. The second is to be unified to him with what we and he treasures most. And the third is we need to experience him. And young adults are really good at the experience part. Our worship nights are awesome. Um, it's because like, we, we feel like most in tune with God and things along those lines. But I, I want you guys to see tonight for the remaining of our time, that living with God is entirely different than those other postures. Because the goal is not to use God, the goal is God. God ceases to be kind of a device that we employ or a commodity that we consume and said God himself becomes the focus of our desire. But before we, I think you and I can really desire God, we must have a clear understanding of who he is and what he's like and what he, and what he offers and who he really is as a person. Let me provide you an example. So one of the things... Um, I remember most about my childhood is when I'd walk into the house, regardless of the time of day, my dad would be cooking. In fact, it's one of the things I miss most about him um, from his passing is I, I used to love going in the kitchen and cooking with him. And I remember walking into my house and, and, and just smelling different food that he would cook and things along those lines. And every day, every other day, he would make some like extravagant meal, right? Like five courses. I don't know what an Italian family, but he would always make these intense desserts. He would make these like soup and salad and breadsticks and then like flame mignon lobster and then some fruit thing or whatever, right? Like, it was intense. He would always be in the kitchen cooking, and I would love that. One day, he, as a kid, he came over to me, and he said, um, do you want to help me in the kitchen? Help me make dessert? I said, yeah, I'd love to. And I come in there, and, and he said, I'm going to teach you how to make creme brulee. And I was like, creme brulee? What? Like, like, I'm nine. Like, that sounds like some, like, weird tart thing grandma raves about, right? Like, what is, what is creme brulee? It doesn't sound like something, like, a nine-year-old's going to want, right? And he goes, follow me in the kitchen. So I followed him in the kitchen, and uh, he handed me the torch, and I was like, sold. Like, I don't even know, I don't know what this is in. I just want this. I said, did you hear about my bombs? And I'm just kidding. Uh, and so I, uh, I grabbed the torch and he, he, we're making in the kitchen together. And, um, and then he, you know, puts the sugar on top of it and he lights the torch for me. And I get, to, I get to wand it over, right? He's like very careful watching me, like burn the house down. He's just very careful. And I loved it. I bit into it. It was like, it was an incredible, uh, incredible dessert. The idea of combining sugar with this torch and fire and all that was just too much for me to resist. And words, ideas, and, and even images only make sense when we have a, a frame of reference for them, and so we can understand them. My experience is that when most people hear or think about God, they have a less than complete and sometimes entirely flawed vision of who he really is. As a result, they tend not really to desire him. At best, they see him as a useful instrument for achieving something more desirable, maybe that purpose that we talked about earlier, that framework or, or a reason or, or way to live your life, or maybe a way to experience Peace of some sort. But I believe that if, if you and I, if people were to have their visions enlarged, if people were to have their, their, their vision 
corrected, if they could see God for who he really is, see the beauty that is Christ, that he would be much more than the advice that we employ. Or in other words, God would cease to be how we acquire our treasure, he would become our treasure. And treasuring him is all about seeing him as he truly is. And so I want you to consider with me the story found in, in Mark chapter 5. And we're going to start in verse 2. And if you have a Bible, you're welcome to turn there. If not, the, the verses will be up behind me. Let me kind of quickly tell you a little bit about it before we jump into it. A man possessed by kind of this unclean spirit approaches Jesus on a beach. And he had been driven from this, this village because uh, this, this man who, who's demon-possessed um, could not be controlled. They, they, they would wrap ropes and chains around him, but they could not contain him. Uh, he screamed uncontrollably, cut and tortured himself, and, and so he would constantly be pushed out of the city. And so let's read it together. Um, it's found in Mark chapter 5, verse 2 and 5. It says this, When Jesus got out of the boat, a man with an impure spirit came from the tomb to meet him. This man lived in the tomb, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been chained hand and foot, but he tore the chains apart and broke the irons on his feet. No one was strong enough to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and in the hills, he would cry out and cut himself with stones. You can go to the next part. When he saw Jesus from a distance, he ran and fell at his knees in front of him. He shouted at the top of his voice, What do you want from me, Jesus, son of the most high God? In God's name, don't torture me. For Jesus had said to him, Come out of this man, you impure spirit. Then Jesus asked him, What is your name? My name is Legion, he replied. We're your many. And he begged Jesus again and again not to send them, send them out of the area. And go next verse. A large herd of pigs was feeding on the near, nearby hillside. The demons begged Jesus, send us among the pigs, allow us to go into them. He gave them permission, and the impure spirits came out of them and went into the pigs. The herd, about 2,000 in number, rushed down the steep bank into the lake and were drowned. Those tending the pigs ran off and reported this in the town and countryside, and the people went out to see what had happened. When they came to Jesus, and this is interesting, when they came to Jesus, they saw the man who had been possessed by the legion of demons sitting there, dressed and in his right mind, and they were afraid those who had seen it told the people what had happened to the demon-possessed man and told about the pigs as well. Then the people began to plead with Jesus to leave their region. As Jesus was getting into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed begged to go with him. Jesus did not let him, but said, go home to your own people and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how much he has shown mercy on you. So having mercy on the man, Jesus healed this man. And when the word reached the town, of what had happened, the people came to see what was going on, and they came to see who Jesus was. But what's really interesting in the story is the different responses to the townspeople that they had to Jesus. See, they ended up being terrified of Jesus. They were, they were terrified because they've seen the power of Jesus. The questions that are racing through their mind are questions like, someone with so much power, could, well, what could he do? He could enslave our families. Who knows what a man of this type of power could do? So they begged Jesus to leave. But the man who, whom Jesus had healed experienced more than Jesus' power. He also had experienced his goodness and his mercy. The healed man had a very different vision of who Jesus was, and therefore a different response. And his response was he wanted to be with Jesus. See, treasuring God is all about understanding the character of Jesus. And, and we could have sermon series on, on who Jesus is, right? That, that, that Jesus is, is all loving. He is, he's kind. He's merciful. He's forgiving. He's just. He's holy. He's all-knowing. He's all-powerful. The God that we worship is, in, is personal. He's intentional. He's incredible. Treasuring God is all about understanding the character of Jesus. And the second part I want you guys to know about is this, is uniting to him. The writers of the New Testament talk so much about being united with or reconciled to they use relational language to kind of explain the type of relationship that we can have with the creator of the universe. 
they, they use this, this, this really interesting language to, to emphasize kind of this interpersonal nature that God has. But because of sin, it has radically damaged our ability to be with God and to be united with God. But thankfully, Jesus came not to just be a revelation of who God was and is, but also to reconcile us to God. And that's why the cross is so central to the Christian faith. In fact, there's a quote I want to read with you. It says this, it is more than a vehicle. The cross is more than a vehicle that rescues us from death. It transports us to be able to be united with our creator and begin that life-staining relationship today. Which brings us to our third part when I talk to you guys today, is experiencing him. Paul so often in his epistles talked kind of about this, our capacity to know God, that God is not dormant and distant, that he's personal, he's near. In fact, he kind of talks about this in Philippians 3, 8, and 10. It says this, What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For whose sake I have lost all things, I consider them garbage, that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not having righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. I want to know Christ, yes, to know the power of his, of his resurrection. See, when Paul used uh, the word to know, it's not merely kind of this like intellectual or cognitive knowledge. What he's actually using here is this kind of like personal intimate relationship that, that we can have with the creator of the universe. See, the reality that he's kind of addressing here is this, that the creator of the universe who makes the whole world spin and float cares about you, that, that he is invested in your life, that he's not the God of the deist who's dormant, distant, and, and doesn't care and, and, and doesn't, isn't involved in your life, but he's intentional, that he's seeking you out like a shepherd looking for a lost sheep. Or as we talked about Hosea a few weeks ago, about a husband looking for his wife. And so you're asking, okay, this is great. I get about the four postures and things like that, but how do I live more with God? Well, Jesus made so often his point in his ministry about talking about this point exactly. He often would ask people what they were willing to leave behind in order to be with him. He'd ask, you know, are you willing to leave your wealth? Are you willing to leave your status in society? Are you willing to leave your profession if I call you somewhere else? Are you willing to leave this location? Are you willing to leave even your families and your friends? With these questions, Jesus was essentially getting to the heart of who people are, what they really desire, what they really love. And in this, he's determining whether they were truly interested in him or what he could offer them, or what he could bring them. But one thing is for sure. Whenever you read any of the 66 books of the Bible, or the 27 of the New Testament, people, when people saw the worth of Christ, they were willing to abandon everything and would crawl over each other to get to him. In fact, there's stories of people that would open roofs to lower their friends in front of Jesus so they could meet Jesus. In fact, Jesus himself gave a kind of a story that kind of went like that. It says this, The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. So to answer your question, how do you live with God? How has that become a posture that you and I kind of fall into more often? The answer to that question isn't profound. It's actually pretty simple. It's prayer. I think Jesus did an incredible job to modeling what experiencing God looks like. The gospel writers record how often Jesus would seek solitude to pray. And his disciples saw the way he prayed, and, and they noticed something different about the way that Jesus prayed. In fact, in Luke 11, 1, they asked Jesus to teach us how to pray. That's what they say, Lord, will you teach us how to pray? And that's interesting, because these people would have, been, would have been Jewish, or they would have known how to pray. So they're asking, saying, like, yeah, this whole thing we've been doing our entire lives, like, yeah, we don't really know how to do it. The way you do it is a little different. The way, the way that you do it is more powerful. You do it different than we do. Could you teach us how to do that? 
Could you teach us to pray like the way that you prayed, Jesus? And the prayer that Jesus taught them has been embraced by Christians throughout history, and it's called the Lord's Prayer. And it's much more than just a list offered up to God. It's a pattern of life in community with him. I once heard a, a, a Christian scholar and apologist, his name is Ravi Zacharias, and if you follow kind of that world, you would know who he is. And he was asked by a, a young adult, actually, what was the most important thing a Christian can do to help live with God daily? And he said something I thought was interesting. He said, every morning and every night, get beside your bed and on your hands and knees and intentionally say the Lord's Prayer. In doing so, you will humble your will and exalt his. You ask only for what you need and want what only he wants. So I have just a simple challenge for you guys this week, and it's something I've been doing lately. And the challenge that I'm going to challenge you guys to do is for the next seven days, the next week, is to do the Lord's Prayer every day before you wake up, before you check social media and the busyness of your life and things along those lines. Just read the Lord's Prayer. I promise you it's gonna help recalibrate you and help you be more in this posture of being with God. Today, I thought it'd be appropriate for the end in reading the Lord's Prayer. So let me read it for us. It says this. This then is how you should pray. Our Father. Father is an interesting term. In fact, the word here is Abba. It means Daddy. No other religious system allows you and I to address the creator of all things in this way. That he's our daddy. That he desires a deep relationship with you and I. He doesn't want anything from you. He just wants to be with you. Our father in heaven, far, majestic, beautiful heaven, hallowed be your name. Holy are you. You are different than every other thing. You are holy, you are righteous, you are all-knowing and all-powerful, you're just. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Let me pray for us. Father, today we come before you to thank you. God, to thank you that you were a God that is invested in our lives. You're not a God who is dormant and distant and doesn't care about us. You're a God that, who, who has intimately knitted us together in our mother's wombs, one who deeply cares about us, who has given us talents and gifts. You've created us. And we thank you, Lord God, that you love us. Today, Lord, we acknowledge, God, that sometimes we have other motives, impure motives when we come to you that, that aren't actually to know you, maybe that are to get something to you. Maybe some of us think that it's our church attendance that pleases you, but really you just want our heart. You just want us. So Father, I just ask today, Lord, that you encourage us, that you empower us with your spirit, Lord, to live more in the posture with you, Lord, as Jesus did. We love you. We thank you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.